I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about amazing people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. This is a very unique episode of Brave Journeys, my friends, and I implore you to all suspend your disbelief and trust that there is a method to what some of you may reasonably perceive to be my madness. My next guest lived a life that I revile and condemn without question. He certainly knows it. In our email exchanges and telephone calls, I couldn't have been more explicit. But it's what he's now doing with his life because of who he was that has stopped me in my tracks. We've all heard stories of people who lived broken, crime-filled lives, who have an epiphany and completely turn their lives around, harnessing the wisdoms and insights they learnt along the way to educate and rehabilitate others. But what if that person in question is a one-time Nazi whose raison d'etre for more than three decades was to see an entire people, your people, wiped off the face of the earth? Let that sink in for just a moment. Jeff Scoop, a once-rising star in the largest neo-Nazi, militant, racist, anti-Semitic organisation in the United States, the National Socialist Movement, or NSM, was once described as the most famous Nazi in America. For 27 years, Jeff was a member of the NSM, and for 25 of those years, he was its national leader. Its repugnant mission was to create an all-white, non-Semitic America. But after sitting down with victims of hate groups who'd both been assaulted and injured in childhood because of the colour of their skin and the God they prayed to, Jeff walked away from extremism forever. Even in the work that I do now, helping people get out, it's like looking in a mirror quite often because you hear people um, and some of the things that they're saying about how dedicated they are to it, it reminds me of how I once was. In March 2019, after 27 years of shamelessly flying the flag for the white supremacist movement, Jeff publicly denounced Nazism and became the highest profile former white supremacist in America to ever publicly reject far-right extremism and hate ideology. Jeff now spends every day educating communities and policymakers about the threat of white supremacy and radicalisation, how to effectively counter and prevent violent extremism, as well as sharing how compassion and empathy, especially directed to those who least deserve it, have helped him reconnect with his own humanity. Jeff also consults to the Simon Wiesenthal Centre, a Jewish human rights organisation named after the late Simon Wiesenthal, who survived the Nazi death camps and devoted the remainder of his life to championing tolerance, and honouring the millions murdered during the Holocaust, as well as ensuring that the world never forgot them. In 2020, Jeff founded Beyond Barriers, a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to countering violent fanaticism and providing support for individuals fleeing extremism. This is Jeff's story. When I initially invited you as a guest, I knew that it would be controversial at best for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. Your past, as I've been very transparent with you about, is something that I despise, condemn, and will never condone, which is why I would never, ever provide a platform to anyone in the world that has Nazi 
racist or malevolent leanings. Mm. So it'll come as no surprise that I needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you truly are who you now say you are and have genuinely, wholeheartedly and unequivocally reformed. I reached out to the Simon Wiesenthal Centre and I asked them to confirm your bona fides and I told them expressly that I didn't in any way want to injure you or be insensitive or disrespectful to you if you are in fact who you say you are, but I would never, ever forgive myself if I got this wrong. And to my immense relief, I have to say it was a relief, the endorsement that you received from the Simon Wiesenthal Centre as a person who's not only legitimately and wholesalely renounced your past, but who's also committed to devoting the rest of your life to eradicating white supremacy and extremism in all its forms, meant that I knew I could proceed safely and honourably. Jeff, I know that I've shared all of this before today, but it's imperative that this precious Brave Journeys community has no doubts about my intentions and exactly where my heart lies. So having said all that, welcome to Brave Journeys. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me on the program. And it's an incredible honor to be here. And and uh, that's quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even half of the introduction. You haven't even heard the introduction. This is just our preamble. Jeff, you are certainly an enigma at best, but I promise to do my very best over the next hour or so to unpack where you come from, what leads you to become who you became, what ultimately transforms you, who you are now committed to being, and the work that you're doing across the United States, if I can say, to atone for the sins of your past and help rehabilitate others from living a life of zealotry and in turn, save many potential victims of hate crimes. How does that sound? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm doing here with the work I'm doing and working with the Simon Wiesenthal Center. It's about repairing some of the damage done by my past and trying to set things straight and and to help others in in the process. And it's not just about helping people to leave extremist groups, but it's about the innocent people that could be potentially injured or, or killed or harmed by people that are radicalized extremists. So it's quite a mission. It's quite a mission. Jeff, you're a native Minnesotan and you're born into a stable, caring family. Unlike many who are drawn into extremism and far-right ideologies, you don't seem to come from a traumatic childhood. Both your parents had good jobs and you grow up in a middle-class home. And yet ever since you can remember, you wanted to be a Nazi. What makes a middle-class boy from Minnesota believe this abject evil? Well, my trajectory of getting involved in the movement was uh, my grandfather fought in Hitler's army during World War II, and my great uncles did as well. And I'm first generation American. My mother and grandparents came over after the war. And I, I want to preface that by saying my grandfather and family did not encourage me to get involved in this life. In fact, they tried desperately to get me out and to keep me from being involved in it. But it was that fascination with that history where I looked into the movement and sought it out and wanted to be part of it. I wasn't uh, raised to hate anybody or to look down on, on others or anything like that. That sort of thing was taught after I got involved in that radical organization. Originally, for me, it was the history. As you said, there's a lot of people that get involved because they've had traumatic upbringings. They've had a, a rough life. They're looking for belonging or a sense of community. There's all sorts of different reasons that people get involved in these things. For me, it was a little different. It was that historical connection and that family connection. So, you know, it makes me really curious. You say that your grandfather and your great uncles fought in Hitler's army, and yet your 
mother and father did not propagate hatred in the home. So did it sort of stop at the next generation in terms of your parents? Well, I can, I can explain that a little better because my grandparents did not have an affinity with Nazism. They were German citizens. Uh, my grandfather volunteered to fight in the Wehrmacht. He was not a, as far as I know, he was not a Nazi party member. When the war was going on, if you were of, of military age, you fought is, is pretty much the way, way that was. So it wasn't abnormal for them at that period of time to be involved in the war. The ideology wasn't something that I learned from them growing up or, or anything like that. In fact, my grandfather just passed away a few years ago, but 10 years ago, he had a conversation with me and he said, Jeff, he says, if you stay involved in this stuff, it's going to wind up in one of two places. You're going to be killed or you're going to be put in prison. And that's that's what's going to happen. I don't know why you're doing this. So that was his way of, of trying to keep me out of that that life. And my parents, in fact, were very, very much against it and, and tried desperately to keep me out of it. But I just kept pushing, 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 obviously, 27 years total, unfortunately, before I got out. Jeff, when you're 15, you travel to Germany to visit a great uncle who, like your grandfather, as we've just mentioned, had also fought for the Nazis. And this is shortly before the Berlin Wall falls. And it's on this trip that you meet your first group of skinheads. What was the impact of that? When I was in Germany at 15, I had met my great uncle. He was one of the family members that fought and I hadn't met him before. I remember asking my mother, I said, well, how am I going to recognize him at the airport. And she said, you look for the guy with the burned off face because he was uh, blown up in his tank in the Ardennes offensive. So that's how I found him at the airport. He didn't speak any English, not, not a word of English. You know, that's where I had first met him. When I was over there in Germany, I was going to school with my cousin who was about the same age as I am. So I was kind of just tagging along with her to school. And I went on her class trips and I did see skinheads when we were um, on the class trip. And I remember mentioning to one of the classmates, I said, hey, there's skinheads over there. I want to go meet them. And he's like, no, don't do that. He says, you're an American. You're German by blood, but you're an American. He says, and some of the skinheads don't like Americans and they might attack us. He discouraged me from doing that. So I actually didn't meet them there. It wasn't until back in the United States a little bit later that I found the National Socialist Movement and some other organizations and, and then, of course, got involved with the NSM. So at 18 you join what was the National Socialist American Workers Freedom Movement in Minnesota. That's what it was called then. Correct. And before long, you are enthusiastically attending the group's rallies, holding anti-Semitic signs like six million more, which I say with a gasp. But for the sake of thoroughness, we have to cover this. But as a Jewish woman and a human being for that matter... I can't even begin to tell you how distressing it was to investigate your involvement in this hate-filled group. But you know what? We've had a lot to do with each other over the last couple of weeks, and I really want to understand. Because as unpalatable as it is, I really know that we need to understand, because without understanding, we simply can't expunge the scourge that is extremism. So, what exactly was this movement for you? Ooh, you know, at, at that age, I felt like, well, that's a lot to unpack in that question. 
Tam. Um, <laughs> I do that quite a bit, Jeff. Um, you know, getting, I have to put my mind back in that place because when I look back now, it's like looking back at someone else. When I see video and, and think back to that time, it's like, oh, I know that guy. It's like, it's almost like it was someone else uh, looking back. So it, it, I have to think on and how to unpack that a little bit. But when I first got involved, I took in all of it as much as I could possibly learn. And that's where the hatred and the anti-Semitism and uh, the tribalism is really developed because you're indoctrinated by it. You're surrounded by it. Your whole echo chamber or your whole bubble or, or like a barrier, you put yourself there. But now you're behind these barriers and you're trapped in this ideology. And if you ever doubt anything or start questioning things, your whole network of people that are involved in it reinforce that that's a wrong way of thinking and that you uh, think in the way of the ideology, basically the way that they feel. Any type of questioning of it, they present you a different set of what they would call facts, but it's not actually facts. That's what you believe, just like with uh, Holocaust denial or, thing, or things like that. There's two sets of so-called facts. I mean, we know one set is the actual facts. The other set is perceived facts. You know, it's, it fits that narrative. I chose at the time and and the people that are involved in it chose to believe the alternate set of reality, which is not reality, excuse me, but it's an alternate, alternate history, basically. We alluded to this earlier, but isn't it true? I mean, you, you've got more of an, an insight into this than anybody. Isn't it true that the vast majority of people who are susceptible to be lured into militant fascist right-wing groups is because there are gaping holes or potholes, as one former Nazi called it, in these people's lives, whether it be trauma or neglect or abandonment or relentless bullying growing up or poverty or all of the above, people who feel so lost or dispossessed that they want to not only feel something, but they yearn to be part of something. But that's what makes you so intriguing to me. You weren't raised in hell. You are incredibly intelligent and articulate. You could have done anything or become anyone. So looking back now, with the benefit of hindsight and now a little bit of space from your past, what was that seduction for you? What was the allure? Well, a movement and a group like this provide a lot of different things for people. And, and I don't say that in a positive way, but it becomes like your family. One of the things and one of the ways I explain it now is, is it's a lot like a cult. And I, I never liked that term before. In fact, I, I couldn't stand it. For years and years when I was dating one girl after another, kept saying, Jeff, this is a cult that you're involved in. You're like the cult leader. Why are you in a cult? And I kept thinking the whole time, what is wrong with these girls? Why do they keep saying that? One after the other, I must be making some really bad choices here in dating. And the problem was me, but I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. Everyone around me could see it. They could see it because they weren't involved in it. But when you're involved in it, it becomes your entire life. So you block off people that that once cared for you or that you cared for, anyone that's not involved in it. And this is why I say it's like a cult, because you become so embroiled in it. It becomes your whole life and you're willing to do almost anything for it. It becomes all-encompassing. You set aside your hopes and dreams. You don't value your own life. Even in the work that I do now, helping people get out, it's like looking in a mirror quite often because you hear people um, and some of the things that they're saying about 
how dedicated they are to it, it reminds me of how I once was. And when you're embedded in that ideology and you're not listening to others, you're not having dialogue with others, you're dehumanizing others, it's very entrapping and all-encompassing. And unfortunately, it takes control of your life and you don't even realize it. Most people, I think, don't realize it. In what ways did the life you chose cost your family? Ooh, it, it cost my family dearly, Tam. When I first started talking about how this affected my life and my family's life, I didn't know if, if I should tell people about it. And, and my colleagues and friends at the Wiesenthal Center said, you know, you really should it lets people know the effect this has because it's really hard for me to talk about myself because I'm not narcissistic. I don't like focusing on my own story because I always think, wow, there's so many other people that have uh, stories and, and I'd rather share some of their thoughts and, and things like that. But I know it's important to unpack this and, under, and understand this too. So how it affected my family. For, for one, my mother was um, an attorney and her dream was to become a judge in the state of Minnesota. She was elected to be a judge. And there was in the state, this is my understanding of it, that there's a formality where the governor of the state signs off on, on all the new judges. It's basically just a formality. If you're elected, you're, you're the judge. But in this case, my mother explained to me, she got a call from the governor at that time. This was back in the 1990s. And the governor said, Mrs. Scoop, your son is involved in the Nazi party. Your father fought in the German army in World War II. We don't think you're fit to be a, a judge in our state. And my, my mom was quite liberal and quite, uh, I don't want to say, she wasn't far left, but she was a liberal uh, left-wing Democrat. So for her, this was devastating. And, and uh, so that's something that I carry to this day. And it's a heavy weight because my bad choices in life destroyed my mother's dream and it's a heavy burden to bear and that's just that's just one example of some of the things my family's been through um they've my family have gotten death threats over the years then and now wow you know it's hard it's hard look you know again watching you in this iteration of your life to see the regret and the pain on your face is very humanizing you know, I feel in inordinate compassion and I feel like I'm on this precipice having this conversation with you because I feel this connection to you and it's very legitimate and we have written what felt like theses between the two of us in terms of our email exchange and I would imagine that would be an incredibly hard, painful reality to think about and to lament. It's also so astonishing to me that you say that your mother, whilst she wasn't far left, she was a left-leaning liberal Democrat. That's almost beyond comprehension. Well, I think that's because the, the common narrative for this is that people join these movements, and I've heard people that have come out say it, and they say, oh, I was filled with hate. It was all about hate. I joined because I hated everybody. Honestly, it is not the most common reason why people get involved in it. I did come across those people, and I can say that as the leader of the NSM for 25 years, I came across those people that joined just out of hate. I would say that was the minority of the people that were joining. And whenever I came across those people, the first thing that went that came to mind was, is this person a sociopath or a psychopath? And I personally think those people are dangerous. Even in my role as the commander of the movement for all those years, those people, I 
kept away from. They're just blank. It's like a blank uh, slate and you can't read them. And if there's, if you can't read somebody, at least in my opinion, if you can't read somebody, uh, there's something wrong there. So yeah, I did come across those people, but they were not the majority. And that's what I think the biggest misunderstanding is of these things. Yes, it's hateful. Hate is a big, big part of it, but it is not usually the reason why people get involved in it. And it is not the all encompassing be all end all. It's, it's a byproduct of it. Basically, a lot of the people that are involved in this, they get involved based on fear. Had anybody told me that, oh, you're afraid, that's why you were a Nazi, that's why you were involved in this, I would have said, you're a liar, you don't know what you're talking about, but that's it. It's all fear-based because they believe that the white race is facing genocide, et cetera, et cetera. So they believe that they're fighting for white people or fighting for their country. So it's not coming from this place where you just hate people because they're different. They hate because they think these people are out to harm them and exterminate them. So it's very easy to hate at that point. Just like what you see ISIS and, and, and they're chopping off heads and things like that. You think these people are inherently evil. In their minds, this is an extremist mindset, just like with the far right, religious extremism or the far left. It's common across all forms of extremism. They all truly believe they're doing something good and noble, even though it's horrific and it's wrong. And it, there's a lot more to it than just being able to put everything in a box and say, you know what, this person was abused growing up or this person had this problem. Oh, I know why this person had this problem. No, it's a lot more nuanced and it's a lot uh, more complicated than that. Um, of course, there is those cases that, that fit into that box just perfectly. You'll come across those, but it is not the majority. And I think that's why I felt it was so important to speak out and, and to help people understand this, because if we're going to confront this and we're going to reverse it, we've got to understand it. That is the irony in and of itself, but you are probably the most well-placed individual to be able to understand, as you said so correctly, the nuance. And in the absence of that understanding, there can be no shift. But shortly after you join the NSM, the then leader Cliff Harrington steps down and appoints you his successor, and you're only 21 years of age. And your long career at the helm of America's most prominent and, if I can say, reprehensible hate group begins. And under your leadership, the NSM becomes one of the most active neo-Nazi organisations in the United States. During these hate-filled decades, you revile and dehumanise many, but Jewish people are always your principal target of victimisation. And you are absolutely the first to admit that you are a rabid, shameless anti-Semite. I shudder asking this, but why? Ooh, it's something I carry with a lot of shame, regret, and guilt today because especially with the work that I'm doing now, the Jewish community has been the most forgiving and the most accepting and the most open, and I work probably the closest with them. Somebody was saying the other day, they said, you went from one extreme to the other, and I said, it's not extreme. And they said, no, not like flipping from one extreme to the other, but going from being an extremist to being about peace and love and, and understanding and, and that sort of thing. And I said, yeah, I guess that is pretty extreme. I just wouldn't have put that label on it, extreme, because when I think of flipping from one extreme to the other, I think of going from far left to far right or to religious extremism or something like that, which I don't do. The folks that do that have not de-radicalized. They've just switched. They've just switched their form of extremism to something else. So they haven't done the work. They've just, they've taken the easy way out and just flipped to the other extreme. But as far as um, anti-Semitism and why, you know, that's, that's the age-old question. But it goes back into this deep-seated hatred 
It was something that Nazi Germany pumped down people's throats, and it was old anti-Semitic tropes. People in the movement just swallowed it whole. I mean, we believed the Jews controlled everything. Friends will joke around about it or something like you could spill your glass of water and say, oh, it was the Jews. That I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but that's how bad the anti-Semitism was. Just about everything was blamed on the Jews. So they would say, well, if there's interracial crime or black on white crime, it's because of the Jews. You know, 9-11 happened, the Jews. The Holocaust they're lying. It was the Jews. You know, everything comes back to blaming it on the Jews. And it was one of the hardest things to come to terms with for me as well. As I was going through the de-radicalization process, I felt like I'd let go of the racism and all, and most of that for quite some time, even before I left. But the anti-Semitism stuck. It was, it was the hardest thing to get past. And getting past that was engaging with the Jewish community, meeting with the Jewish community, having dialogue, working specifically with the Simon Wiesenthal Center and Rick Eaton had come out immediately, like within two days of finding out that I'd left the movement. It came out to meet with me, having those conversations and learning, just basically learning. So it was like everything that I was preaching when I was involved in this stuff, I would be billed as an expert on the Jewish question or, or things like that. And it was like, wow, for such an expert, I was so wrong. You know, like when you're a little kid and you're in school and you have, I, I don't know if they have it over there in uh, Australia, but here they have something called opposite day where you wear your shirt on backwards and everything's the opposite. It's just a fun thing for the kids. So when I found out that what I believed about the Jewish community was wrong, it felt like opposite day because it was like everything that I believed or I thought that I knew was wrong. The Jewish community and even the Jewish faith is is based on redemption. There's there's stuff about healing. There's stuff about human rights and and humanity and and love and compassion and all these things. And it was just the opposite in the movement. They didn't believe any of that. They thought it was lies. So apparently, I don't stereotypically look Jewish, and my surname doesn't scream Jewish because my father changed his name when he left Hungary. But I've heard anti-Semitic tropes all of my life. But people didn't necessarily know that I was Jewish when they were spouting this vitriol. And I remember this one occasion where, I mean, there's, there's so many I could recount, but there's just one that really sticks in my mind. And it wasn't the worst of what I'd heard. But I was working, I was doing telemarketing at 18 to pay my rent. And I went at the smoke break that my colleagues had, and I went and bought coffees for everyone. And I came back with this tray of coffees in my hand. And I can promise you, Jeff, I wasn't flush with funds at that stage of my life. I think I had three jobs at the time and was studying full-time. And I brought the coffees back and someone dropped some money. And another colleague went to pick up that money for the person who dropped it. And a third person said, why are you being such a Jew? And I was really taken aback by that. And you have to understand, I was in a crowd of a lot of people and it was very confronting and I wasn't very confrontational. I was the opposite but I thought in that moment I have a choice. My choice is to say nothing, my choice is to say something, or my choice is to be as compassionate and as peaceful as I can be, but re-educate this group of people in the most loving way that I can do it. I chose number three, and it was an instant decision. And so I said to the person who'd made the comment, I said, what do you think of me? And for her, it was completely out of context because that was just a throwaway line. You know, we get imbibed from such a young age 
with racism every single day. We don't even know we do. Hopefully this generation is moving somewhat away from it, but it is systemic. From the second you're born, whatever beliefs your parents have or the neighbours have or your grandparents, whatever, it becomes part of who you are. And so I said to this girl, what do you think of me? And she's like, sorry? And I said, do you think that I'm stingy? Do you think that I'm miserly? And again, she hadn't made the connection between what she'd said and the questions I'm asking her. And she goes, are you crazy? You've got 15 coffees in your hands for everyone. And I said, but I'm Jewish. And in that moment, you see the face change because from the belief that she'd had to having it actually legitimately challenged by the most inane of deeds, changed that woman's perception that day. Now, I don't know what she went on to do with her life, but I hope it had some resonance. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't loud. It wasn't aggressive. It wasn't militant. I wasn't shoving something down her throat. I just wanted to show her in the moment that you have this perception of a people and I am hopefully an example in this moment that I don't behave in that way. So therefore, your proposition is completely debunked. You destroyed that stereotype is what you did, and you did it with with compassion. You did it with dialogue and answering and basically answering, blowing away that stereotype without even realizing it. And that look on her face is, is, is it said it all. Well, I've seen that look on your face, and I'm going to get to that very soon. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> because that was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen. But at one point, you even try to establish a white ethno state in Leith, North Dakota. Tell me about that. Your your uh, investigative journalism uh, research here is phenomenal. Like you really you really have a handle on this stuff. So Leith was this little town that was basically I don't even remember the population like twenty people maybe. It was it was very small. It was almost like a ghost town. There was like just a couple of buildings, a couple of houses. An associate of mine went and bought up some of the properties. He was staying out there and encouraging other families to move there. But the idea was is to take over the the town by population, you know, have people move there, run for elections, become the mayor, become the city council, things like that, and basically take it over and start a white ethno state, or in this case would have been a little a little town. But the far right movement, the extreme far right, has long had these ideas about having their own little section of the country. Some have called it the Northwest imperative, where they want the Northwest section of the United States. Others would say, no, we want the South. You know, and these movement groups, they all argue amongst themselves. So nobody can have a coherent plan as far as what they want to do, because as much as they argue with the rest of the world and hate everybody, they also hate each other. They hate a strong word, but dislike each other and they fight amongst each other. And there's violence between a lot of the different groups as well, even over religion, over politics, over you name it. Jeff, you had spent your adult life in the movement. In the quiet moments when no one else was around, neither your minions or your minders, how did you face yourself? Or was that even a question that you grappled with ever during your time in the movement? You know, towards the end, when I was really struggling with getting out, I I faced that quite a bit. But earlier on, when I was uh, fully radicalized, it wasn't a question of that. Uh, Now, I I remember an ex-fiance of mine, she was not into the politics, but she wanted to go and and, uh, see what, what was going on and things like that. The way she referred to it, I think this is what people would find this interesting. She goes, who you are at home and who you are 
in the movement functions, it's like two different people. When you get behind the microphone and you're giving a speech for the movement, she goes, it's like snapping a finger, like a light switch came on. Or when you step off and, and you're in that mode, it's like a completely different person. So for her, it was fascinating in that sense. When you see footage of me in the movement, I'm out there yelling, I'm you know, directing orders, things like that. That was not the person that I was at home. And that's not the the person that my family saw or any anybody that was in my personal life that was not part of the movement. So towards the end, though, reconciling with who I was, it was, it was really difficult. It was very, very difficult. In August 2017, you take the NSM to Charlottesville, Virginia, to march in the notorious Unite the Right rally. Jeff, tell me about that and also what tragedy unfolds there. Yes, I went to I went to Charlottesville. I almost didn't go because I was not going to be listed on the speakers list. The organizers didn't didn't want me on the speakers list. They didn't want open uh, Nazis there. Is is the way some of it was put. And so I thought, you know what? If I'm not wanted there, I'm not going to go. And I remember, you know, having some discussions with people in the group, and they're like, "This is going to be a really big rally. Even if you're not speaking, you should just go." I went, a number of NSM people went uh, along with me. In all the years that I'd been involved in, in, you know, 27 years total, actually 25 as the national leader, I'd not seen that degree of violence. There's, there's been violence at a lot of things, especially when the police are not separating the far left and the far right. In Charlottesville, the police were absent at, at first. They came out later and they called it a state of emergency. The National Guard was on the streets and all that. But at first, the police were nowhere to be seen, which was very strange going into that, especially considering the, the vast numbers of people on both sides, on the right and the left. And then peaceful protesters and stuff in between, too, getting caught in between some of this stuff that was going on and the violence and and things of that nature. And the night before in Charlottesville, there was a torchlight event. I wasn't at that. I didn't attend that. But I was at the daytime rally that was there. And then um, as that, after with the state of emergency and the National Guard were out on the streets, I was on my way out of town already, you know, leaving, leaving the event, had heard that a car accelerated and ran into a crowd of people. And I learned that a, a young woman lost her life in that car attack, and, and it was horrifying. One month after this rally, 10 Charlottesville residents file a civil suit against the NSM organisers, naming you as a co-defendant. And they drew on a statute known as the, if I'm correct, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which gives the president power to combat white supremacist organisations. And the lawsuit accuses the Unite the Right organisers of conspiring to commit racist violence. On November 23rd, 2021, you are already out of the movement, but a federal court in Virginia found both you and the NSM, along with a slew of other defendants, guilty on charges of civil conspiracy. What did the findings of that court case do to you personally? Well, I, I mean, it's a complicated thing to to uh, break down because a lot of people, when they think about that case and they think about Charlottesville, they think about it as, a, as like a criminal case. And the criminal case, they had some criminal cases in Charlottesville as well from fighting and, and the violence that took place there. And um, a number of people are still in jail or prison from that in particular. So I, 
I want to clarify, you know, just for the listening audience, that I was not charged criminally in anything, anything like that. It was a civil lawsuit that I was uh, charged under. So basically, the leaders of, of most of the groups that they knew of that were in attendance, with the exception of cer- certain individuals, for whatever reason, were left off. Most of the prominent leaders that were there that had attended were part of that lawsuit. So I was uh, sued in that lawsuit and and lost the suit along with everybody else. It was pretty complicated because here, you know, I'm, I'm speaking out as of 2019 and now I'm still having to defend myself in a civil case and next to people that now view me as a traitor and, and hate me for what I'm saying, speaking out against racism and hate. So actually, because that lawsuit was going on, one of the things that was going through my head at the time, because I had already wanted to leave some time before that, but I, I just wasn't, didn't have the courage to do so, I guess you could say, which I, I really don't like saying that either, because I, I see myself as a pretty courageous, non-fearful individual. But I, I think that's the only way you can break it down. I didn't have the courage or didn't have the the strength at the time to to break free and leave. So one of the things that I, I had said to my friend Dia Khan, one of the very few people that I was talking to about leaving, I said, I don't know if I can leave now because of this lawsuit. This lawsuit is going on and, and I don't know if I should leave because I leave my whole life. Everything that I was doing before, my income, my job, everything was involved with the movement. So I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did walk away at the time. And I'm a little angry with myself. I'm quite angry with myself that I didn't leave sooner. But these were some of the things that I was mentally going through and and having to unpack and and decide, like, should I leave now? Should I leave later? It was a pretty harrowing uh, ordeal to still be involved in that on the other side, because I don't need or deserve people's sympathy or anything like that. But I think they don't unpack these things. And they think, how do you do that? The people on the far left hate you because you were a Nazi all these years. And then a lot of the people in the middle do too, rightfully so. And then on the far right, the people that were backing you for all this time, now they hate you worse than anything. So where are your allies? Where are your friends? Where's your support network? So I I was facing a lot of this stuff almost entirely alone in a lot of ways. And it took a lot of of strength. But uh, like I said, I'm not saying that to earn sympathy or or anything like that from, from anyone. Um, it was just some of the many complications that I faced and it, it was hard as heck. It was hard. When do you first begin to have doubts about the cause itself and the beliefs you not only maintain personally, but espouse so malevolently and so publicly? As far as pinpointing a time, it's tough to say, but it was definitely after I moved to Detroit. I, I, a lot of times I'll say Detroit had a, had a part in this, in the de-radicalization process. I'm from Minnesota originally. So Detroit, Michigan is a city that's uh, predominantly other races. Uh, I was going to say minority, but uh, they're actually the majority here. So white people are the minority. So anytime that I was out and about doing different things, I would meet people of all different races and, and, and things like that. So after some time after I moved to Detroit, those ideology started breaking down. And I moved here in December of 2007, and I've been here ever since, but it didn't happen right away. So when I first got to Detroit, I felt like culture shock. And then it was like, why am I fighting these people? We have more in common than we have differences. And we're all struggling in the same ways. So that started breaking down here, probably more closer towards 
towards the time where before I left. I'd say if I had to pinpoint a time, I'd say around 2016 somewhere, maybe 2015, that time period. So Dia Khan is a remarkable Muslim filmmaker. She is as beautiful as she is brilliant, as she is gracious, as she is composed. She's she's one out of the box. She's something special. And her extraordinary Emmy Award-winning documentary, White Right, Meeting the Enemy, is one of the most, genuinely, Jeff, one of the most profound pieces of filmmaking I have ever seen. Why did you agree to sit down with this remarkable Muslim woman and be interviewed by her in the first place, considering you were the commander of the NSM? That's a great question. I had been in all kinds of films, documentaries, um, news articles, and things like that for years and years and years. So being a part of another documentary was, it was just day-to-day in my role as the commander of the NSM. We knew that whenever we were doing films, it wasn't going to be anything pro-NSM, but in our mindset, that cult-like mindset, some people are going to be able to see through this propaganda of this film or any film, you know, that we're appearing in and we'll, we'll find recruits out of it. So that's why we agreed to it. That's why I agreed to those, those type of things. What I didn't realize is that by meeting Dia Khan, I would make a, a lifelong friend and someone that would, that would help me to see the humanity in others. So she called me up and said, you know, um, I'd like to meet with you at, the, at that point in time. She had not met with anybody in the movement it was in the early stages of the film. I believe I was the first Nazi or white nationalist that she had actually met for the film. And I remember saying something to her on the phone um, about, you've got a half hour or an hour, I forget what it was, but you've got a half hour of my time, that's it. Then I'm coming in, ask your questions and I'm leaving. And normally I stuck to my own rules, but in this case, I did not. So we're sitting there, she's asking questions, three, four hours later, all this time passes. Now we're, we're exhausted from all the talking. And um, she, sa- she looks at me and she goes, so Jeff, what happened to that 30 minutes of, of your time that uh, you, you didn't leave? You didn't get up and walk out. You didn't leave. And I just remember they're sitting there at the beginning meeting her and going, huh, why didn't I shut this down? And so I'm trying to answer her and I was like, well, your question's intrigue me. The way she she tackled things intrigued me because I could tell that she was truly wanting to understand this. She also traveled with us to Charlottesville. So I spent a lot of time in the vehicle with her and, and everything else. And the running joke between her and I was, is that she was like a bratty little sister because she, she just kept pushing, pushing. I got more questions. I got more questions, Jeff. I'm like, man, how... How many hours in a day do you have for questions? Don't you get tired of this yet, Dia? You know, and we're going back and forth and back and forth. By the end of the film, Tam, she asked if she could hug me. This was off camera, of course. And she said, I don't know what, what's going on here, but we're not supposed to be friends, Jeff, but, you know, we are. And I said, I want you to know, Dia, I said, you've got a brother for life in, in me. And, and I mean that. And that just, we're just both like, whoa. <laughs> I think you've rendered me speechless. (laughs) Takes a lot for that to happen. Oh, my goodness. I've got to ask you this. I I didn't think about this before, but I do want to know, how did your minders or your minions, as I've mentioned before, feel about you spending this much time with a Muslim woman, even if it was for the sake of how you'd rationalised it as being a propaganda vehicle for you to be able to recruit people? How did they feel about it? 
Because I was the national leader, I didn't get a lot of pushback from people. Like the NSM was set up like a dictatorship in a lot of ways. There wasn't voting. There was a there was a, chain, a strict and rigid chain of command, modeled after like the military in a, in a sense. There was ranks. There was uh, positions and, and things like that. So if somebody had a problem with something, they would have to use the chain of command. Or of course, I had a handful of advisors and people that have been with me for 20 years or for a very, very long time, those folks would speak openly, privately, not in front of people or anything, but they would speak openly, share their concerns or or things like that. But I wasn't the only person that left. During the course of the filming, there was a couple other high-ranking guys from the NSM specifically that had left from their dialogue with uh, with Diakon in particular. But there wasn't a lot of pushback at the time. But after the film came out, I was still involved at that point. And um, there was a few people that said something like, boss, you look soft. You look soft. Like, she got to you. Like, she, you know, because the cameraman zoomed in on my eyes and, and all that. And Dia even told me before the film came out, she said, um, she goes, Jeff, she goes, there's one thing in the film you're not going to like. And I said, uh-oh. You know, I'm thinking, I, my mind is going everywhere. Like, uh-oh, what, what can I not like? And she goes, it's not bad, Jeff, but you're not going to like it. Well, what I wasn't going to like was, is that she showed how she got to me. And I was still in at the time, you know, we're having this conversation. I was still involved, but how she was able to touch my heart. And when she told me how racism and hate affected her as a child and how it made her feel, I felt like something broke inside, like something cracked in my heart. Uh, Or sometimes I explain it like it felt like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. And the cameraman caught it. He was on point and zoomed in on it. So there was people that in the movement that saw that and and uh, their way of processing that was, uh-oh, you know, the boss looks soft. He looks soft. Well, I have to say, I'll provide some context. I saw a snippet of the film during the Red Table talk that you appeared on with Jada Pinkett Smith. I knew I had to say the rest of that film. I had to say the rest of that film. And you very generously sent it to me. And to see the profundity of discomfort on the faces of men, you included, who were respectfully, calmly and oh so intelligently challenged by Dia about your violent racist ideologies, as well as her questions that gently encouraged you to all meditate on your own humanity, was extraordinary. And I will never forget as long as I live I would beseech anybody if they can get their hands on this film to see it because I will never forget as long as I leave her asking you if you would refer to her as shit-skinned because that's what people in your movement would have called a Muslim person. And it's evident that you already have a rapport with this woman. Yep. And you just see your veneer crumble before the viewer's eyes because by this point, Dia had actually reached you with her grace and her measured approach. She was not aggressive. She was not militant. She was soft and she was gently explaining to you how it has impacted her life. And it's palpable that you cannot bear for her to self-refer as shit-skinned anymore. And in that very moment, you see the light cracking through the dark, which I know was her intention. It was to find the humanity amidst the propaganda, to find the person the human being, which is what she does so effortlessly. 
and it's so powerful. And we've, we've, we've said this earlier, but it's much harder to hate once you humanize. And you see a lot of men who are very senior in the movement, not as senior as you, who really can't cope with that cognitive dissonance. The head of your PR who leaves the movement at the end, who also is asked very gently, very softly by Dia, so if you created a white ethnostate, you would necessarily have to evict me. And he looks at her and his brain can't quite assimilate it. And he says, but you're my friend. And you can see the risk he's even taking by sharing that truth with her. And then he says something like, because he has to try and rationalise it in his brain that he's clearly tormented at this point, and he's like, well, 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 you you were raised in the West. You know, he's trying to sort of find some reason why he can allow a beautiful Muslim woman to be part of his world even though he knows ideologically he cannot allow this. It's incredible. I wish I could articulate it better, but it's so moving. I mean, I had goosebumps all over my body just to see the impact that, um, as one former Nazi said, when you give compassion to someone who doesn't deserve it, how they can actually crack open. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. That's it in a nutshell right there. And she had had that gift. And I, I tell you, there was nothing more more powerful than sitting across from somebody and them showing a little bit of vulnerability and sharing that part of their self or their own journey. If you are sitting across from somebody, especially someone that you've gotten to know, but it doesn't even have to be, it could be an initial conversation and you're sitting across from somebody and they're talking about how that affected their life, how something like hate and racism affected their life. I could see the pain in her eyes, but more important than that, Tam, I could feel it like a vibe or an energy in the air. And it, hit me hard. She showed me her humanity. Once you see the humanity in the person that's across from you, even if it's a so-called enemy, there's there's no coming back from that. I mean, that's that's very real. And, you know, there was other little things that happened over the course of, of filming with her too, where she would ask those gentle questions, you know, about the ideology. I remember we were in a, a abandoned building here in Detroit and she said, you know, we're sitting here in Detroit and, and we, the economy's been hit harder here than in most places in the country. And uh, we're seeing the ruins of like what, what's happened here in, in, in the city. And, um, but Jeff, you know, I understand what you're saying and, and um, it makes some sense and, and everything like that. But isn't this a problem that affects all people, not just white people? And then she kind of smiled and said, oh, wait a minute, not just all white people, because Jeff, you don't represent all white people, just some white people. So she's saying that to me and asking, asking it in a question. And I'm like, oh, I remember at the time I just spewed out some movement rhetoric. But that night, later that night, when I, when I got home, I was like in my head over and over again, Jeff, you couldn't answer that lady's question. You couldn't answer her question. Why couldn't you answer it? You know, so I'm, I'm searching like how... Why couldn't I answer that? Because I should be on point. I should be be able to answer any question that's asked to me, especially about the movement as as the leader of the movement. And I couldn't answer it. So I just gave some kind of response that was okay at the time. But 
in my heart and in my head, I really didn't have an answer. And the reason I didn't have an answer is because I was wrong and she was right. It was something that affects all people. And, it, and then even the little, the little jab, not, not, not all white people, Jeff, just some white people. It made me think like, yeah, this does affect all people. And why as Americans, why as, as human beings are we dividing over these superficial things? You know, so that's where some of the seeds were planted as well. And, and, and they, they kept stacking up and then eventually it's stacked up so high. You just have to go. On August the 12th, 2019, on the two year anniversary of Charlottesville, you make an announcement saying the following, I realized many of the principles I had once held so dearly and sacrificed so much for were wrong. After wrestling with my conscience over how to best set things right, I realized that I cannot just sit back while the world continues to burn in the flames of hatred. Instead of remaining silent, I have decided to speak out and help others. It is now my mission to be a positive, peaceful influence of change and understanding for all of humanity in these uncertain times. Skeptics have suggested that your decision to leave the movement when you did was to deflect the heat that had been brought to your door by the lawsuit, especially because of the relative swiftness between your formal exit from the NSM and your public metamorphosis. What do you say to that, Jeff? Well, I'd been sued before. You don't leave and change your whole entire life of 27 years because you've been sued. It just, to me, that that whole idea doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the lawsuit was not something that anybody would want to deal with. I mean, I certainly didn't want to deal with it. And it was um, even more difficult to process and all that because I had left and all that. So I left in March of 2019 and I started speaking out in August. Um, I felt like I was ready then to start speaking out, but it didn't really have anything to do with the lawsuit. They're two separate instances. So I know that there's people that want to paint that story, but it just doesn't make any sense. It would have been easier. And, and now I say this, you know, with nuance, it would have been easier to stay because my lawyer was being paid by the organization and all this kind of stuff. So it would have been a lot easier to stay in, in, involved in that sense, but it wouldn't have been the right thing to do. My conscience, I was struggling with my conscience about being involved in this. So um, I made the right move and, and got out. But then I still had the lawsuit to deal with anyway. So um, the two things were were not really tied together. Nothing about Charlottesville had to do with why I left. That had no bearing on that. You know, as heinous as it might be to decent people everywhere, the NSM was a place that afforded you respect, identity and community for 27 years. I mean, that's a lifetime. I don't think I've been in a job or a career for more than three. So that is a, an absolute lifetime. So stepping out of a world which provides a sense of purpose, albeit for all the wrong reasons, to one where you'll once again be seen as an outcast, must require incredible strength. What were the days and weeks and months like for you after you left the movement? Ooh, your, your questions are getting more difficult, Tam, than, than, than easier. I got to say, that, that time period, like from March of 2019, when I officially left, I retired. And there's, there's some nuance to this. I retired then. I knew I was going to speak out at that time. 
but I retired because you can leave the movement and retire and walk away and you're fine. You know, I knew the moment I started speaking out, the threats were going to start rolling in and, and that was going to be a whole nother thing. And I still had a lot of processing to do. I didn't have all the answers when I, when I first left, I was still struggling a little bit with the anti-Semitism because I didn't have a good understanding of it. So I wasn't ready to speak out immediately and I'm, I'm glad I didn't, but that time period, that March to August was one of the most difficult, trying, stressful, horrible times in my entire life. It was so empty, lonely, sad. You're beating yourself up. Now that I've walked away from the movement, I can actually focus on myself and, and, and introspect. And I tell you what, that introspecting was not pleasant. Man, why didn't I leave 10 years ago? Why did I get involved in this in the first place? How, how stupid Am I stupid? Why did I, why did I believe this stuff? Why did I think this way? Why didn't I see it? So you start thinking you're stupid. You start beating yourself up over it. For lack of a better word, it was hell. It was absolute hell. When I started speaking out and having a purpose and a, and a mission again, which is what I do now. So I was an idealist before an ideologue. I was fighting for the wrong thing, but I thought I was doing something good. You see, now I know I'm doing something good and I'm uh, in service to all humanity, not, not to divide people, not to hate others or anything like that. So that was, that was a difficult time. That was a really, really difficult time. No doubt. And it's incredibly rare for an extremist leader to exit and be willing to take up the task of counter-extremism, much less a leader of 25 years standing, which is what makes you so unique. There are people that have left far right-wing movements and have dedicated their life to trying to de-radicalise others, but they weren't the top of the tree. And truth be told, and I've said this to you before, one of the greatest reasons that I wanted to speak to you is that I can't honestly imagine anybody better placed to make such a difference in this realm. You are in a completely unique position as far as esoterically understanding the movement and the motivations of its members which is certainly critical, I would imagine, to, to government policy and to counter-terrorism programs. But I wonder whether as far as deprogramming individuals goes, who are currently in these groups, whether you have more or less credibility because of your past. Um, that's a good question. As far as the credibility goes, a lot of the people that reached out at first especially when I, when I went public, I released my personal website. And at that point, I'm getting emails nonstop. And there was people that were writing and asking all these questions. And, and this was before I formed Beyond Barriers, you know, which is the counter-extremism organization I run today, the nonprofit. At first, you know, I just released my personal website and spoke out against racism and hate. And there was all these people reaching out and they're asking, why did you leave? Are you Antifa now? Are you a communist now? Like these were one after another. Like that was, and I thought, what am I doing or saying that would make people think I'm a communist of all things? You know, like I, I, I've seen people leave one extreme and go to the other, but that's not me. That would, that, that's not a de-radicalized individual. At first I was getting kind of agitated and angry about it. I thought, why, what am I saying? What am I doing that makes these people think that, that you know? And I thought, aha, 
you have to unpack it. You have to put yourself back in that, in that, in that mindset. I was like, you know what, Jeff, you too believe that everybody that got out and spoke against racism and hate was Antifa or was a communist. Instead of getting mad about it, I started engaging with the people or like, well, why do you think that, you know? And, and, try to get them to talk and engage in dialogue and then tell them, no, I'm not a communist. I could never be a communist. And a lot of them reached out and there was some that reached out that said, hey, if you're working with this former or that former, and I don't name these people and I won't, they watch what we all post online. Even if they don't have accounts, they're watching under, you know, assumed accounts that they're not posting things like on Twitter or Facebook, wherever, on social media, they see what we're posting and they're like, well, so-and-so is with Antifa. And if you're working with him, Jeff, I'm not talking to you, but I want out. I want to get out of this life, but I don't want to become far left. And I was like, you don't have to. You can get out and you can be on the left. You can be on the right, but don't be on those extremes on the far ends of it. Stay somewhere in the middle, like most of our countrymen, and, and be somewhere there in the middle. You can be right, left, middle, you know, just don't hate others. And they're like, wow, Really? You know, like it's this grand epiphany that just came, that just popped up. It should be common sense, right? But it's not. It's not. So if they thought f- that I was working with some of these people that express these far left views, which is the natural enemy of the far right, they're not even going to talk. They're they're shutting down. They're they're going to stay where they're at. Or if they feel like a lot of them were asked, so if I leave, do I have to do that? Do I have to go to the other side? No, you don't. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, if I have to make that choice, I'm going to just stay where I'm at. And they, they'll tell you that. They've told, a lot of them have told me that. There is a great need for starting an organization and tackling this in a nonpartisan manner and not being political about it. And the other reason for starting Beyond Barriers was I couldn't keep up with all these people myself. I couldn't keep up with it. So I was like, man, I got to get a team together and, and they can work on this. And a lot of times I'll be telling people, Hey, I'm on the road. I'm doing different things. Can I have you talk to one of my colleagues? And they'll say, no, you know, I'll just wait till you're back because I know you, I know you from before, or I saw your speeches. I know who you are. And, and some of them will say they didn't know some of these other ones, or they never heard of them, or they were low level guys. They know who I was because I was I was very high very very high profile no national leader has ever left in the United States before so it is it is quite a draw in that sense un- unfortunately for me because I would rather have not done any of it but this is where I can give back and because I understand their mindsets I understand where they come from and I spent all those years there I do have a a real understanding of how they get there and and also how to deprogram and get them out Can you please explain what a former is for those who don't know that terminology? Yeah, it's a pretty loose term, right? When I say former, I mean like former extremist, former Nazi, former extremist is what I mean by that. If you were sitting in a coffee shop with someone and there was an extremist, far-right extremist sitting at the table next to you and you engage in conversation, what I'm trying to gauge is whether or not they would think you had more or less credibility because you left that movement in the sense that as I said, governments will believe you and um, policy programmers will believe you because you have a knowledge that they will never have. But an individual would sort of the instinctive reaction be, if you are actively trying to deprogram is my point, not if they're actually approaching you. Mm. If you are actively trying to deprogram somebody or reach somebody, would the argument be, well, who the hell are you? You just walked away from the movement that you led for 25 years. You know, what credibility do you have? Well, that's really not the way it works. I mean, we we did engage in some of that where you know you you'd go out and you would try to 
talk to people that are Im- embedded in it that are still really th- in the thick of it and it, it doesn't it doesn't work very well as far as that goes and in their minds um as somebody that's really embedded in that lifestyle those of us all of us not just me but all of us that walked away and that speak out were traitors to to them so they would have to get past that and uh, and understand that we're not going to hate group meetings and being like, Hey guys, come over here and talk. You know, it it doesn't work like that. It's, that's not going to work at all. You have to have a one-on-one dialogue in these conversations. And and there's some people that just are not willing to have it or they're not ready to have it. So, um, unfortunately we can't reach all of them, but if someone starts questioning things or even if they're just curious, I've had people that have reached out. There was one individual and he emailed through the website, uh, through my website. And he said, um, I'm a big fan of all your speeches and I've watched them for years and back in the nineties. And and I'm thinking, Oh God, what is this guy getting at? Like, I was like, he emailed through my website. Like, did you not read a word on it or anything like that? So I wrote him back and I was like, well, Hey, you know, thanks for the, uh, kind words about, uh, my speeches and stuff, but I got to tell you, I'm not involved in that anymore. And and you should really read my website, (laughs) you know, like I'm in peace building now and you should really check it out. And the guy wrote back and he says, I know, he says, I just didn't know how to start the conversation. I didn't know what to say to you. I I just, I didn't know what to say. So that's, I already knew, I already read your site, Jeff. I just didn't know how to approach you. Wow. Jeff, you visit a synagogue in Skokie Valley in February, 2021, which was a life-changing experience for you. I want to understand how you assuage the understandable misgivings and confoundments, particularly of the Jewish community, who were the target of your principal rage, bile, hatred for so many years. How do you turn that around? And what was your experience in this synagogue? That was the first time I'd ever been in a synagogue for one. And I brought a couple of individuals with me. That was their first time as well. So there was three of us, another former extremist that had invited us. So TM Garrett, a friend of mine, and TM and I were speaking there. But it was it was an amazing experience, Tam. It was life-changing for, for me because I was so nervous, like beyond nervous. I, I, I don't even get anxiety, but I had anxiety that day. TM, he had spoke at synagogues before and, and he's asking me all these questions because he was like, afterwards he goes, do you feel better now or worse? And I said, what are you asking me, TM? And he goes, do you feel worse about who you once were after the experience today? And I said, oh yeah, yes, yes. Because the rabbi that was there, he was like, talking about us like we were heroic for the work that we were doing and that w- w- it was so important. And I, I figured there's got to be some people in here that are just going to rip into us, you know, uh, for who we were. It was really difficult. And instead, people were engaged. They came up. I, I got more hugs that day, I think, than in- at any time I can remember in, in any location ever more hugs that day from the Jewish community. And they just kept, the ladies and, and different people just kept coming up and saying, is it okay if I hug you? I, I want, I would like to hug you. And I, it just blew me away. It just took my breath away, the kindness and compassion. And it was like, wow. You talk about 
having to process things that that was a lot and and, and I still get that feeling a lot today working with the Jewish community and in, in, in different in different areas and some of my my best friends now are, are Jewish people which leads me to ask you about Beyond Barriers and your work now with the Simon Wiesenthal Center because you are surrounded by people who were once your perceived enemies and these are the friends that you have who are your dearest friends who you are changing the world with. So tell me a bit about the work that you're doing now. Well, with Beyond, we started Beyond Barriers, as I, I mentioned briefly. It's a nonprofit. We work in uh, extremist disengagement and de-radicalization. And I also work as a consultant and a public speaker with the Simon Wiesenthal Center. I'm also a public speaker for Conscious Campus, which goes into the schools and, and things like that. And that's a passion of mine as well, because I feel like if we can get into the school systems and uh, get more opportunities to be able to talk to the youth, whether it's high schools, colleges, so on, we can tackle these things when people are young so they don't get involved in organizations like I and so many others had gotten involved in and, and, and try to whittle away at some of that fear that we talked about earlier about how they're afraid of different things. They're afraid that the white race is going to be wiped out and all these different things that they're afraid of and, and show them that these communities that they're vilifying and that they hate are really no different than them. So sure, there's different customs, there's different religious practices, little, little things like that, but these people are really no different we all have the same wants, the same desires, the same looking out for our families and our loved ones and our friends and, and things like that. So these are not things that people should be divided over. So if we can make those changes and change the world in that in the process, and the Jewish people have a couple words for this. One is as tikkun, tikkun olam. You said that very well. <laughs> I, I said it. Very I said well. it last week um, in a room full of uh, Jewish folks, and they're like, "Oh, you even got the <laughs> right." <laughs> <laughs> well, you've put that in an email to me, so I've ha- I've seen you write it before, but I haven't heard you say it before. That's right. wonderful. So, tikkun olam is the concept of healing the world. Yeah. It's repairing the world, and you know, there's another precept in Judaism which is about not embarrassing someone for their past. That was also a tightrope that I walked today because I knew that it wasn't appropriate not to recognize your past because your present makes no sense in the absence of it. So it was never designed to denigrate you or to rub your nose in what your life looked like, but it had to be acknowledged. And I can't apologize for that, but I also really want you to know how much I want to celebrate this chapter. And the final question that I have for you, how do you truly change hearts and minds? If you had to distill for me the magic or the formula, how do you do that? Well, the other Jewish Jewish term or Hebrew word or Yiddish, maybe I'm getting it wrong, but it was teshuva. That that was another one um, that that speaks to my mission as well. But how to how to um, change the hearts and minds, Tam? We call it relational dialogue, and a relational dialogue program is based on. Uh, my experiences with Dia Khan and also uh, Daryl Davis, another friend of mine and a colleague at, at Beyond Barriers. We didn't really touch on uh, Daryl today, but those two individuals, they are some of the best in the world at it. And it is framing conversations and, and conversations are reciprocal, you know, back and forth and, and listening and understanding. And even with extremists, you know, if you go to them and say, you know, I can't believe you think like this, how racist, how hateful, and you push, 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 they're going to push back automatically. And you're not going to get anything you want to say heard. And they're not going to listen. And they're going to be in defense mode. And it's you're not going to get anywhere. They're not even going to push back. They're going to double down. Yes. Yes. 
100%. Exactly. It's almost vindicating their position. Yep. You got it. By playing into that militant, aggressive mode. Absolutely. Absolutely. So asking questions, asking them to explain it. And uh, sometimes we break this down with like, for example, QAnon. And I know we didn't talk about that, but they thrive on conspiracy theories. And this is an easy one. So it's an example of how relational dialogue works. One of the theories that QAnon had at one point anyways, was that John F. Kennedy, the president that was assassinated many years ago here in the U.S., that he was going to come back from the dead and uh, work with President Trump or or something of that nature. We all know John F. Kennedy is not going to come back. He's really dead, unfortunately, you know, and and, um, it was really sad what happened. So instead of going to a QAnon person that believes in this stuff and go, how can you believe that? You know, you're an idiot. You know, instead of doing that, you go, okay, so why do you think JFK is coming back? Or or how does that work? You know, and, and be curious about it. This is how Dia Khan and, and Daryl Davis got to me. Is and and it works all the time. We're using it all the time. So get them to explain it. So if they're gonna sit there and explain how someone's gonna come back from the dead and maybe not be a zombie or something like that, you know, how do they explain that? So you have to ask from a, a point of curiosity and be able to listen and then whatever their answer is, then you can pose it back to them and go, well, okay, I understand what you're saying. Don't necessarily agree with it, but how about this? And then start posing, posing questions in different ways. So they're not going to, probably not going to say, you know what, you're right. It's not true. That's ridiculous. But they're going to go home that day or that evening and they're going to think about their answers and, and they're going to go, wait a minute, why am I believing this stuff? It's not real. And that seed is planted. So it takes time, but you got to be like a Johnny Appleseed and plant those seeds and, and sometimes they'll grow into a great, uh, a mighty tree. Just tell me quickly, because we didn't talk about Daryl, can you just tell me who he is and what he means to you and his involvement in Beyond Barriers? Yeah. So Daryl Davis um, was someone that I'd met just before meeting Dia Khan, actually, just a number of months before that. And also for his film, uh, Accidental Courtesy. So it was another a case of meeting somebody through a film. But uh, the background on Daryl Davis, and, and I always forget this because I don't refer to people typically as their race anymore. So I'll start talking about Daryl and then I won't say Daryl's black because he's just a friend. I don't see him as black Daryl. He's just Daryl. So, but when I met him, He's a famous musician. He lights the piano keys on fire. He plays Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Um, that's what he does. Like he's known for his music and his piano playing and singing and all that. And he's a phenomenal musician. He can play guitar and, and everything. If you ever get a chance to see him, um, anybody in the listening audience, check him out. He's awesome. Daryl is widely known for walking over 200 people out of the Ku Klux Klan as a black man. That's pretty extreme, right? So he uses the same method or similar methods that we do and what what dia had used to reach people and and to connect with them so when i met daryl davis i was in full movement mode at the time and 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 daryl and i speak he works with us at beyond barriers and when we speak we'll we'll tell people about this story when we're out but when when we met and daryl will say you know we're sitting there talking and and getting along like friends and then all of a sudden that light switch that I mentioned earlier in, in the conversation, that light switch flipped on and I went, I'll fight to the last bullet for my people, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and a little clip of that I think is in his film. But um, I had to forget for a minute that I'm talking with somebody that I'm really getting along with and having this 
great conversation with about music and all these different things. He, he just has a way with people. He has a real gift, just like Dia, that, of being able to reach people in even some of the most extreme circumstances. Black people do not end up at Klan rallies, but Daryl Davis has. He's a very special individual, and I'm honored to uh, consider him a brother and, and a friend and, and uh, um, work with him to this day at Beyond Barriers. Jeff, as I said to you before today, I absolutely believe in redemption. And as a Jewish woman whose father and grandparents miraculously survived the Holocaust, but many other members of my family didn't, I will never, ever condone your former life. But you have to believe me when I say that I see a man before me today who is trying in earnest to redress the grievous damage your former ideology and actions caused. And therefore, what you're now able to achieve because of that former life is truly remarkable. I am so proud to champion you in this profound iteration of your life. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining me on Brave Journeys. It was an incredible honour to be here, and I'm so honoured to meet you and, and have made a new friend in the process. Thank you, Tam. It was wonderful to have you join us today. The brave journey of my next guest is simply extraordinary, and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Brave Journeys was created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg and Ursula Ferguson. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. And if you love the show, please don't forget to tell your friends and family about it, rate it, and leave a review. That's what keeps us on air. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.